Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people. From this time forth and forevermore, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us to look to your word, to glean from it, to learn from it, to apply these principles, these um, statutes which you um, intend to teach us, to conform us into the image of Christ, to trust you more, to look to you always, to walk in your ways. We thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we've been going through the song, songs of ascents, we um, need to remember the the context that these psalms were written um, in different orders, um, but they're arranged in, uh, or at different times, but they're arranged in this order, um, and they were written for the purpose of singing on the way to Jerusalem, on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem in, in those appointed feasts, uh, three particularly, but uh, throughout the year to uh, come and gather as a people of God, as a nation of Israel to worship God in Jerusalem. And uh, many of the people that would come would journey from far away as they were um, living outside of the nation and uh, these psalms, um, we don't have a lot of background information about when they were written, the context, um, and they are written uh, all throughout the history of Israel. Uh, some, of the, some commentators, some theologians try to pinpoint exactly when, and it, it's still kind of hard to see. Um, some, they would try to place um, during the time of the exile or... or, or after the exile, um, rather, after the exile to Babylon or before, um, this one, uh, Psalm 125, some try to put after the exile. Um, but whatever the case may be, the people are traveling to Jerusalem, and, and these psalms are written um, not only to sing to one another, but to recite along the way, to encourage one another, to lift one another up. Um, to hope in the Lord, to look forward to gathering together, to worshiping together, um, and to strengthen their faith. And many um, had come from uh, background and circumstances in which they were either um, dealing with persecution or struggling through the trials of life, just living in a sin-cursed world. And so you can see, um, as the rest of the Psalms, different um, levels of human emotion. But this one clearly um, 
points to a trust in the Lord, to encourage us to rest in the Lord, to hope in the Lord. Old Testament scholar Willem van Gemmeren, in his commentary, writes this concerning um, not only this psalm, but several other psalms like it. He says this, he says, several psalms, um, 46, 48, 76, and, and numerous allusions in the psalms proclaim the excellencies of Zion. At the center of Zion theology is Yahweh, the divine warrior king, whose kingdom extends to all creation, but especially to his children. Psalm 46 helps us to visualize God, the creator of earth, mountains, and sea among his people, elevated on a high mountain with a mountain stream representative of his blessings flowing throughout his kingdom. And all throughout the Old Testament, um, and even in the New Testament, we see allusions to or pictures of mountains, and specifically Mount Zion as a place where God dwells, as a place where God is worshipped, as almost like um, a rock, a, a, a fortress, a dwelling place, a high place, a place to look up at God. And certainly this psalm points us not only to Jerusalem, but Mount Zion and, and thinking of that high place of the protection of Mount Zion, the security it affords. And, and definitely we see security in here. We see stability. We see hope. And in this song of ascents, um, we see five assertions really throughout this psalm. It, it's a short psalm, five verses, and, and each verse gives us an assertion, five assertions concerning the character of God and particularly in relation to man. His five assertions to bolster the people's faith in God. Um, we see the stability of God, the security of God, the sanctity of God, the supplications to God, and the settlement of God. First, the stability of God in verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. And right away, we see throughout this psalm, and particularly in, in verse 1, an illustration, an analogy, uh, the illustration of Mount Zion, which is right in the center of Jerusalem. It is Jerusalem itself. And, and nowadays, um, and for, in fact, um, a long time in the history of Israel, um, probably soon after... Um, Solomon, as, as Jerusalem was expanding, and definitely um, by the time of Hezekiah, um, Jerusalem had expanded outward from that um, singular ridge line and mountain, which is um, known as Mount Zion. But it's still, we still see um, Jerusalem centered upon Mount Zion, that one mountain, that one Ridgeline. You can look at a map and, and, and the terrain and the topography of uh, Jerusalem, and it, it helps to see um, what the psalmist is talking about. And even throughout the whole Old Testament, um, sometimes in my study, and, and this is helpful, this is, this is the reason why most of your Bibles have maps in the back, because it helps to see that the, the pictures, the maps, the, the geography. 
It helps to understand. Um, and not just in a, a psalm like this or a passage like this, which talks about one place, but especially when the, there's passages which talk about multiple places and towns and villages and, and roads. We get a better picture of what the, the Bible is talking about. But especially here, um, ever since Abraham, perhaps, Abraham was told in uh, Genesis 22 to go and sacrifice his son. His son. Go to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain which I will show you, Mount Moriah. This was before um, anyone was um, really established there. Um, we do read earlier um, in uh, Genesis in chapter 14 and, and uh, 15 in, in, in which uh, there is that, that uh, battle in which uh, Abraham goes out and he rescues Lot um, from that battle between, uh, amongst the kings. And uh, there is that, that scene where Melchizedek, is this mysterious figure, Melchizedek comes out and, and he, is no, he is called the, the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem quite, quite literally uh, means city, city of peace, city of Salem. Shalom, um, and this was probably one of the first instances of Jerusalem in the Bible. And, and then later on, uh, Jacob, when he lays down at Bethel area, all throughout the history, uh, the Old Testament history, and, and some of the, the people, uh, Joshua and his conquest, um, David, most specifically, because Jerusalem is known as the city of David. And it wasn't until David um, captured that city that it became the, the express uh, capital and city of the people, where the throne would be, where the center of their worship would be. It was chosen by God. It was established by God. Uh, foreshadowed from the time of Abraham that this would be the center of the nation where they would come and worship. And even the sacrifice of Isaac looks forward to the sacrifice of Christ. Um, and yes, Jesus was um, not sacrificed in the precise location um, on the, where the Temple Mount is, but not far off from the Temple Mount. We see that that is the center of, of Israel. Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, chosen by God, established by God. Psalm 76 says this, In Judah God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place in Zion. And so right off the bat from this, the beginning of this psalm, we see this illustration of Mount Zion, that comparing um, the people of God who trust in God are like the mountain of God, Mount Zion. And there's implications here that as Mount Zion is uh, immovable, it's solid, it's stable, even that, that ridge um, 
its bedrock, um, the Temple Mount upon which um, the, the, the temple was built. It, it's, and you can go there today and you can see the foundation stones are, are humongous. Um, some, they say, you know, could stretch the width of this, this uh, room and high, multiple tons of rock. It's solid, it's stable, it's immovable, it, it, immovable. Uh, Dr. William Barrick, he says this, he, um, concerning the implications of this verse, he says this, the trust that God desires of his people does not focus on things, a city, fortresses, armaments, or man, but on the Lord himself. And yet we see this illustration of something that is uh, solid, stable, and movable, but ultimately it, it's, it's illustrating something greater. It's illustrating the Lord, his, his uh, stability. That he himself is immovable. And those who trust in him will be immovable, will be stable, will be solid. We will abide forever. One New Testament reference to this is, is just showing the eternality of our faith and those who trust in God. As Jesus tells um, his disciples, that he talking about himself as a good shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And there's a sense that when the pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem, they were coming from all over, all over Israel, different nations, but wherever they were coming from, it wasn't as safe, it wasn't as secure, it wasn't as stable as uh, Jerusalem, as Mount Zion. This was uh, a place where it, it wasn't just the capital, but it was a safe place, it was a fortress, it was a place that could be easily defended. It was a place that was secure. And so we see in, in this first verse, we see the stability of God. And then second, in the second verse, we see the security of God. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. And, and, and it wasn't, it's not just Mount Zion and that specific mountain where the Temple Mount is, where uh, Jerusalem proper, so to speak, is where David built his city, but it's that location, it's that there's mountains surrounding it. Not just that that one mountain is stable and secure, but the, the area around it is stable and secure because where it's situated. And, and once again, this is where um, understanding the topography, the geography um, helps us to see this, that uh, Mount Zion itself, the Temple Mount, is actually a couple hundred feet lower than the mountains around it. 
It's almost as if it, it, it's in a bowl. And as you come up over, which one of the main routes was to come to Jerusalem, was from the east um, by way of from Jericho up over the Mount of Olives, and, which is a couple hundred feet higher than the Temple Mount. And you would come up over and you would look down into Jerusalem. And if, if you right away think about it in those terms, you think, well, you know, if the mountains around it are higher, how is that, you know, because there's a higher position, how is that secure? And, and the thing is this, in, in those day, in that day and age, with the armaments of spears and slings and arrows and, and all, they were out of range. And it was almost as if it's a natural dry moat around Jerusalem that in that Mount Zion, in, um, on that ridge, you could see all attackers, all invaders, anybody that would come, you could see them come up over the hills. They couldn't sneak up on the fortress. They would have to come up over the hills, and then they'd have to come down, either way, down, and then by the time they got to where Mount Zion was, they were lower. And so it, it was an easily defendable place. And it was surrounded by these mountains. And so this, this whole, the psalmist uses this topography of not only Mount Zion, but Jerusalem and the mountains around it, the whole area to describe um, what God is like, how the, the security and the stability of resting in God, as one would rest in uh, the fortress of Mount Zion, of Jerusalem. This was a strategically advantageous position. It was a coveted position. This was something, it, it took a while to, for the Israelites to even um, capture it. It wasn't until David. They, they, they were in the land for, for uh, several hundred years before they even occupied Jerusalem. Because the Jebusites were there. In Joshua chapter 15, we read this. <clears throat> and during his conquest, it, it says this. Um, as the people were coming into the land, they were taking over the land. Um, and they were driving out the inhabitants of the land as God had told them. It says this in Joshua chapter 15 and verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. To this day, meaning when the book of Joshua was written. Um, and then in Judges, the beginning of Judges, it says this in Judges chapter 1, verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The Israelites had to go around. And there were several pockets of resistance uh, from the Canaanites, but um, particularly Jerusalem. They, it's almost as if they didn't even try until David. And here we read about David's conquest in 2 Samuel chapter 5. It says this, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, 
They were taunting David and his men. They said, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. And it's interesting, it, I, during seminary, I had to write a paper. I, I wrote a paper studying Jerusalem and the geography and the topography. And, and you can even find um, uh, animations, like computer animations of the assault on um, Jerusalem and sketches about how it came about. The, the only verse we have to go off of is this verse right here in 2 Samuel um, 5, uh, uh, verse uh, 8, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. And he offers, in, uh, he offers uh, anybody who would attack and, and take over the stronghold, he offers him to be chief and commander of his forces, which um, the person who did that was Joab. And uh, in Israel, we see... Um, you can see uh, what they call Warren Shaft. It's named after the, um, the explorer, uh, an Englishman who found it, found that shaft. And it comes from the uh, Gihon Spring, the spring that is down off the side of the ridge line. And um, there's a shaft that is um, somewhat natural but probably expanded. And Joab climbs up there, gets in the city opens up the gate so that David can come in. Certainly he killed some people to, so that he could capture it, but that was the only way in. It was the only way to, to assault this city. It was, it was almost impenetrable, except for this water shaft, which was um, the, they needed it to, get, to have a source of water. But it just shows um, how... Um, almost impenetrable this fortress was. That the Jebusites themselves taunted David. And they, in a sense, said, said the invalids, the blind and the lame. Um, you know, as one pastor um, preaching on this has said, you know, it, they're, uh, a, a nursing home, um, you know, a, a nursing home residents are defending this stronghold. <laughs> so to speak. Um, they're, they're taunting David, and yet he takes it. And from that day forward, it, you know, the, the notoriety of Jerusalem as a stronghold would hold. Even, even when uh, the, uh, the um, Babylonians take over, the Assyrians tried to take over, but um, we read about the, the angel of the Lord striking 185,000 and them dying and... and uh, Sennacherib going back to, um, to uh, Nineveh and dying. But later on, when the Babylonians take over, Jeremiah writes this in Lamentations 4 concerning Jerusalem. He says, uh, Lamentations 4 and verse 11, he says, The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, 
that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was the, uh, this was the notoriety of Jerusalem through the um, ancient Near East, that it was impenetrable, that no one could take it. And this is the picture that the psalmist gives us, the illustration and the implications concerning those who trust in the Lord. That those who place their faith in the Lord, those who rest in the Lord, are like Mount Zion, they're like Jerusalem, they're like this fortress, immovable, solid, stable, secure. But not only that, protected, protected by God, and in a most advantageous position. Psalm 34, 7 says this, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Psalm 32, verse 10 to 11 says this, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That the Lord surrounds us. He protects us. He keeps us stable, secure, Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on this psalm, he writes this, The hill of Zion is the type of the believer's constancy, and the surrounding mountains are made emblems of of the all-surrounding presence of the Lord. The mountains around the holy city, though they do not make a circular wall, are nevertheless set like sentinels to guard her gates. God doth not enclose his people within ramparts and bulwarks, making their city to be a prison, But yet he so orders the arrangements of his providence that his saints are as safe as if they dwelt behind the strongest fortifications. What a double security the two verses set before us. First we are established and then entrenched, settled and then sentineled, made like a mount and then protected as if by mountains. And the thing is this, in the day and age of the psalmist and the Old Testament saints, they had a physical uh, location to look to. They had this this illustration of of what God is like as he um, keeps his people, as he um, secures his people, as he is that stable, immovable rock that we can trust in. But nowadays, as the church, and ever since... um, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, ever since the, the um, establishment of the church, we don't necessarily have a location to look to. God dwells within us. And we are to look upwards to God. But we're, we're no less safe than the Israelites because of God's sovereignty, because of his providence, as um, one, uh, one pastor has said a long, long time ago, that um, I, I am immortal until God calls me home. That nothing can touch me. And, and even Jesus said, not one hair will fall from your head apart from the Lord knowing it. Not one sparrow will fall from the sky unless the Lord commands it. We're still just as safe and secure as if we were in a fortress. And so we see 
the stability of God. We see the security of God. And now verse 3, we see the sanctity of God. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. This is uh, the idea that, that God will, he will not only protect us physically, but spiritually. He's not only um, protecting our, our lives and our physical well-being and, and making sure that we have um, all the things we need for life in this world and are secure and safe, but he also protects us spiritually. It says, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. And this, this phrase, scepter of wickedness, points to the rule and reign of a wicked king, a wicked govern, government. Alan Ross, um, in his commentary on the Psalms, he writes this, This psalm of trust seems to have been written when the nation was under a wicked government either corrupt Israelite leaders or Gentile dominion. But all there is to go on in, this, in the psalm is the expression, the scepter of wickedness, which refers to the government. Whatever the occasion, the psalmist was convinced that those who lived faithfully would not be caught up in the wickedness of the state under such leaders. But those who might get caught up with the wickedness would suffer the same fate that God had in store for the wicked. The main emphasis of the theology of the psalm, then, concerns the security of the believers, especially in trying times, and the insecurity of the make-believers who will be exposed at those difficult times. And this kind of points back to the history of Israel. As we can read in, in the, the, the books of First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, and we see the... Um, the line of kings of Judah and the kings of Israel and all the history of Israel. And we see that oftentimes, and, and probably more often than not, the rulers and the leaders of Israel were not righteous. They were not faithful. And not only that, but um, oftentimes Israel um, became a, a vassal state to other nations around it. They, they had to pay tribute because they did not, it, did not um, obey God's law. And because they did not obey God's law, then um, God removed his um, hedge of protection, so to speak, from them. And they were subject to the nations around them. And he used the nations around them to discipline them. But at the same time, as this verse says, verse 3 of Psalm 125, Five, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. And so every time um, Israel and Judah um, fell under uh, uh, a wicked government or a wicked ruler, it was temporary. It was only for a time. It was only for a matter of years or decades. And then God would give them relief. And, and oftentimes what would happen is um, Israel would go through these cycles of disobedience, of idolatry, and then God would discipline them, and then they would repent, and then he would, uh, in a sense, give them a certain level of freedom and prosperity again. 
And then they would disobey again and fall into idolatry again. And then he'd have to discipline them again. And then they would repent. And it's just like a parent-child relationship. <laughs> but that is, that's the history of Israel. And yet God promises, and as the psalmist says, that the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. And why? Because he, he, he does not want the righteous to be um, tempted beyond their ability to fall into sin, to stretch out their hands to do wrong. Because even in, um, in their disobedience, God is watching over them. We see God's protection, his protection and his provision. We see his protection for the land, whether they were um, under um, the dominion of oppressor nations or, or wicked kings. We see his protection for the people that they, in a sense, have a right to the land, that God is still upholding his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even to David, that his covenant stands. He watches over his people. We see his provision for the land, for their nation, for the people. And, and even, even today, it, it's interesting that even today as, as Israel is a state, and yet they're a state in disobedience to God, they have rejected their Messiah, and yet God has, in our modern times, brought Israel back into the land, so to speak. Yes, there's Jews all over the world, um, but Israel is a nation. And yet, e e even though Israel is a nation, there's still a divided nation. There's still wickedness. There, there's still, e e even the Temple Mount itself. I I Israel doesn't have dominion over the Temple Mount. It's, it's governed by, by uh, Jordan and Muslims. Control the, the, the Temple Mount. And that's part of God's plan as well. But yet, he watches over his people. And he has a plan. And he will uphold his covenant. He will fulfill his covenant. Alan Ross, once again, he writes this. He says, The psalmist was convinced that God would not let such wickedness become so severe that even the elect would turn aside from the faith. The verse is paralleled by the Apostle Paul's dictum in 1 Corinthians 10.13, where Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. And this is what verse 3 is, is pointing to, that even in the worst of times, even under wicked rulers, even under a wicked government, it's temporary. It will not last. And we can see this in our day and age. Though America was founded on biblical principles, and during its founding, there were many believers, though many of the, some of the founding fathers, we question whether or not they are a true believer or not. You cannot um, 
cannot avoid the fact that our Constitution is grounded in biblical principles. And yet we see where our nation has drifted, and because of the wickedness of our nation, that tempts other people into wickedness. Sin begets sin, and even tempts the people of God into wickedness. It tempts churches and ministries to drift from biblical moorings, to uh, drift from the foundations of, the, of Scripture, to guide us in, in our lives and in ministry. It's uh, the wickedness of our world is tempting uh, churches and believers to capitulate on clear uh, commands of Scripture. And yet, uh, the promise is that God will keep His people. And no temptation will completely overtake us. That there's always a way of escape. There's always a provision to be faithful. We, we, we can't make excuses, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how wicked of a culture or a government we live under, we can't make the excuse that uh, you know, our, our, our circumstances or the temptation was too great and I just I couldn't help myself and so I, I fell into sin. No, we're, we're, we're still responsible for our sin. God will provide a way of escape, and the scepter of wickedness will not rest on the land. It will not rest forever. That there is a time when the wickedness will be removed. And so we see the stability of God in verse 1, the security of God in verse 2, the sanctity of God in verse 3, and then now the supplications to God. Verse 4, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. The psalmist prays to God to, to continue to pour out His blessing on those who are faithful. Even though they may live under a wicked government or a wicked ruler or a wicked king of Israel or, or a wicked king of Judah, who has turned from the law, they're still standing firm in their faith. They're still holding fast to their testimony, to the covenant. And so the psalmist prays to the Lord that he would do good on those who are good, on those who are upright in their hearts. And so in, in these supplications to God, we see the prayers for and from the people of God. And oftentimes, and this is true in, in our own day and age, that um, we just naturally pray for those closest to us, but also for the people of God. We pray for persecuted believers around the world whom we've never met. We don't know their names. Sometimes we don't even know their, their situation or their circumstances. We just know in places like North Korea or China or... Um, in the Muslim countries, that there are believers there. And there are believers there that are in um, circumstances which none of us would want to be in. There are believers who are being persecuted, and we pray for them. Our heart goes out to them. We ask for the Lord to do good to them, even though they're in 
those circumstances where it's, it's hard and almost um, life-threatening to be a Christian. So we pray for them, that God would uphold them. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on the Psalms, he writes this. He says, It is important to notice the difference between the writer's prediction of God's sure judgment on the wicked and his petition for blessing on the righteous. He does not need to ask that the wicked will be judged because their judgment is certain, sometimes sooner than, than either we or they expect. The church father Athanasius said of Julian the apostate, the last major persecutor of the church, when he heard that he had died, that he said this, that little cloud has quickly passed away. The wicked are devoted to destruction. By contrast with his prediction of judgment on the wicked, the psalmist asks for God's blessing on the righteous. Because none actually are righteous and any goodness they have or receive must be due to God's goodness to them. None of the righteous have any claim on God. God owes us nothing. At the same time, there is no end to the good things God has prepared for those who have been made righteous by the work of Christ. And it is proper for us to pray for an abundance of good things as the psalmist does. We have a good God, and we can ask him to be good to us and to others who know and love him too. And that's just the the natural outflow of our heart to other believers. And it should be especially those who are um, being persecuted, especially those who um, it's hard for them to live faithfully, for those other believers who, who don't have a church building, who, sad to say, there's many believers around the world, they don't even have a Bible. And our heart goes out to them. We pray for them. We, we ask the Lord, do good to those who are good those who who sincerely want to follow you and want to obey you, that would, in a heartbeat, trade places with us, would love to be where we are. In this prayer, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. It's not just a prayer for and from the people of God, but it's prayer in accord with the will of God. This is a a prayer right in line with God's will. To pray for those around us, to pray for other believers, to pray that God would show His goodness, would show His faithfulness, would show His mercy. And, And when we pray prayers that are directly in line with the will of God, we can be sure that they will be answered. And they may not be answered in the time frame in which we want them to. It may be that God leaves his beloved children under the threat of persecution in dire circumstances, but nonetheless, he will answer those prayers. And that good that he does to them in that situation, it may, it may be to uh, strengthen their faith, to conform them further into the image of Christ, that as they are being persecuted, as they are suffering, that they suffer in a way which honors Christ, which exalts Christ, which shows that their comforts, their desires, their pleasures are not in the things of this world, but in the things of heaven. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he says this, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is why we pray in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers. We just naturally say that this is one of the many verses where it comes from, that we pray in Jesus' name. But even praying in Jesus' name is not just tacking that on the end of our prayer. That, that, that's um, kind of the, the um, wave of the magic wand so that it will be answered. No, praying in Jesus' name means that we pray our prayers are accord with the will of God, which our prayers are exactly what God would want. We pray, Lord, your, your name be glorified. We, we want your gospel to go forth. We want believers to be faithful. We want them to be strengthened. We want um, Bibles to be sent out and missionaries to be sent out, and we want your name to be exalted. Those are prayers which God will certainly answer. This prayer to do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts, the faithful. Help them, Lord. This is the same prayer that David prays in Psalm 18, in a sense. He says, Psalm 18 and verse 25 to 26, he says, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure. But then with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. God will always uh, vindicate himself. He will do good to those who are good, but for those who are crooked, he will make, him, he will make himself seem tortuous. And this brings us to our last point, the settlement of God. We've seen the stability of God in verse 1, the security of God in verse 2, the sanctity of God in verse 3, the supplications to God, and now the settlement of God. Verse 5, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. We see his settlement, his judgment, his vindication. His justice is being meted out. And it first goes to those who turn aside to their crooked ways. And this goes right off of verse 3. Lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. That's an indication of those believers who backslide, who are tempted into sin. But there's also an indication that there's others who completely fall away. In verse 5, they don't just backslide, but they show that they were never, they are never believers to begin with. They go apostate. So we see his judgment upon the apostates. Those who turn aside to their crooked ways, as, as John writes in 1 John, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all are not of us been in the church long enough, you've seen people that have gone out from us. And the same was true in the um, Old Testament times, in the times of Israel. That those who quickly turned to idolatry, especially when times got tough, especially when persecution came, especially when the, the, the culture around them was not... Was not um, going along with their morals and ethics and values. 
worshiping God. We see this in, in our day and age. It is, uh, one, um, one theologian um, in our day and age now, he says there's a tsunami of apostasy coming. And it's going to come. And we see it, we, we see it in a lot of um, the quote-unquote celebrity Christians, those who have um, started a Christian band or whatever, or um, maybe it was um, some uh, uh, pastor that had some sort of seemingly meteoric rise in Christendom, and, and then all of a sudden we see them just out of the blue go apostate and turn. Sometimes it's because of some cultural um, ethics concerning uh, sexuality or, or sexual immorality, actually, and, and they, they don't want to stand firm on what the Bible says, so they quickly turn away. They turn aside to their crooked ways, as the psalmist says. And, and as the psalm shows, because the, the scepter of wickedness, there, there's this cultural pressure coming from the top down, this cultural pressure of wickedness, of, of turning away from God, of, of not doing what God says, of, of actually doing wickedness. And it spreads and it pervades throughout the whole culture so that not only are the people of God tempted, but the professors, the false believers, they are exposed and they turn away. Jesus gives this warning in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. He tells his disciples, he says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, probably the most horrible words that any person could ever hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the fate of the apostate. That God will judge them. And it's almost as if Jude kind of alludes to this, and there's other allusions to this in the New Testament epistles, that the judgment upon um, apostates and false teachers is even worse than anybody else because where there's more light, where there's more truth, more revelation, there's a responsibility to uh, follow that light, to follow that truth, to adhere to that revelation of God. And, they, and we're all accountable for the words that we hear, for the things we know, to follow them. And as I've heard several pastors say, you know, it can be a dangerous thing to be in church. Because we hear wonderful things about God and his revelation, and yet as we hear them, God expects us to abide by them. To, and he holds us accountable. And there will be apostates who had the appearance of being believers who will be judged. As the psalmist says, those who turn aside to their crooked ways 
The Lord will lead away with evildoers. So we see his judgment on apostates, but then we also see his execution of the evildoers. That the apostates will be lumped in no matter how many good things they did or their appearance of faithfulness or their knowledge, whatever it may be, they will be lumped in with those who um, went headlong into evil, who loved their sin and promoted sin and, and, and tried to lead others away into sin. The apostates will be lumped in with them in the judgment. Alan Ross, and once again in his commentary, he says this, the main idea can be worded in a number of ways, but the psalm is essentially saying this, those who are secure in their faith will hold to their integrity in spite of pressure from wicked government. But those who turn to evil will be judged with the wicked. The instruction to be drawn from this would be on making sure that one's faith is in the Lord. And that it is a faith that is growing so that it can withstand such tests. A strong faith will be secure in the Lord and will be characterized by a righteous life and an upright heart. On the other hand, there are many people who profess to be in the covenant community, but there is no evidence of genuine faith. And in evil times when there is either subtle pressure or outright oppression, they will conform to the lifestyle of the world even if the standards of righteousness have to be set aside as outdated or irrelevant. This is what we're being told by um, many um, so-called believers, unbelievers, the apostate churches in our day and age, that those morals, uh, traditional marriage and traditional uh, sexuality and sexual morals, those things are outdated. They're irrelevant. You, you say that a man can't become a woman or a woman can't become a man. You're almost looked at as a caveman. It's like, and, and that's clear, that clearly shows the depravity. That, that you know, one of the, the um, evidences of God judging a nation, God judging a character, or judging people is that he gives them over to a debased mind. That they can't even think right anymore. Something as basic as gender and sexuality is um, thrown out the window. It's confusing. It's subjective. It's no longer a basic fundamental truth of reality. This is what happens in a world that turns away from God. And for those who turn aside to crooked ways because of the culture, God will lead away with the evildoers. Yet this psalm ends, in a sense, where it begins. That those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. And because it abides forever, those who trust in the Lord, they have peace, shalom, prosperity, well-being, favor, peace be upon Israel. In Isaiah 26, there's this, um, as you know, God is speaking through Isaiah, and it's almost like the first um, half of Isaiah is all judgment. 
judgment on the people of God, judgment on Israel, judgment on the nations all around them. Everybody's getting it. Everybody's getting paid back. And, and yet there's this, this, uh, these couple of verses here in chapter 26 and verses 3 to 4. It says this, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And even in Isaiah's day, as, as many were turning aside from God's commandments and, and going into idolatry and, and trying to strike up alliances and deals with the nations around them, trying to either go to Egypt or, or go to Assyria or, or wherever it may be to find um, security and stability, as bad as it gets, Isaiah writes, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And if we trust in the Lord, no matter how bad our circumstances get, no matter how wicked our world gets or our culture or how fierce the persecution is, if our mind is stayed on him, he will keep us in perfect peace. As I've heard, you know, Many um, people say before, many pastors that, you know, suffering really only happens in one place, and that's between your ears and your mind. Now, that it doesn't mean we don't feel pain, and we, you know, when things are taken away, and, and you know, someone who's, who's beaten and tortured or whatever, but there is a sense that we've heard several stories, and you can read biographies of martyrs, of people in prison, Richard Wormbrand is one of them. He says, you know, during his time in prison, he felt the greatest joy, the greatest communion with God because God was with him. Even though he was being tortured, even though he was being persecuted, starved, humiliated, he felt a closeness with God. His, his mind was stayed on God. He looked to him. He trusted in him. Because he trusted in him, he was able to endure. He was like Mount Zion. This is this verse in Isaiah 26. It's echoed by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4. We get this command in Philippians 4 and verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And when he says always, he means all circumstances. We are to rejoice always. We rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And if we do this, he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, what he means by that is in the midst of these trying circumstances, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of your whole world falling apart, you seem to have this peace, which to the, everyone around you is confounding. It's, they, 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 don't, they don't get it. It surpasses all understanding, all human logic. Why, why are you at peace? You should be in turmoil. You should be complaining. You should be grumbling. You should be throwing stuff and yelling and screaming and spitting. 
but you're at peace. You're at peace. Because you're trusting in the Lord. Because your mind is stayed on Him. This psalm, I was looking at it and studying it. And, you know, some, one of the hardest things I think for a preacher sometimes is to figure out a title. <laughs> sometimes you just want to put the text. <laughs> but I titled it The Fortress of God. And not as if, you know, there's a, a fortress that God has but God himself being the fortress. God himself is our fortress. He is our refuge, as Psalm 46 says. And as Martin Luther wrote this hymn that we still sing today, 500 years later, this hymn that would be the battle hymn for the Reformation, and it is still our battle hymn. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal, mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. For those of you who don't know, when it says Lord Sabaoth, Sabaoth is another term for, a Hebrew term for Lord of hosts, meaning Lord of the angels, Lord with legions and legions of angels who He can call at His bidding to come to his side to deliver his people. He fights our battles as the psalmist says, the angel Lord encamps around those who fear him. He is our fortress. He is our trust. He is our hope. And if we trust in him, we are like Mount Zion. If our mind is stayed upon him, he keeps us in perfect peace. Heavenly Father, we live in a world which seems as if it's getting worse, not only day by day, but hour by hour. And not only is the world around us getting worse, but it seems as if many in the church are capitulating, or at least those who claim to be yours are capitulating. And Lord, it's not just the world and the church, but it's, it's our own lives, it's our own hearts, our own minds that we... Um, can oftentimes be fickle in our faith. We get anxious, we get worried, we get fearful. We're suspicious, not only of what may come or what may happen, but sometimes we can even become suspicious of one another. And it's because we dwell too much on ourselves and on the things of this world. And so, Lord, help us to dwell on you. Help us to trust in you. Help us to look, in you, look to you to... Um, rest in you. You alone are our hope and our trust and our stability. Please be with us. Please guide us and protect us and remind us of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.